And now, get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Well, happy Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Get Growing at Talk 650 KSTE. Farmer Fred here, Fred Hoffman, UC Cooperative Extension, Lifetime Master Gardener, Garden Columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel, the guy that does all the typing at FarmerFred.com, all the ranting at the Farmer Fred Rant blog page at Twitter.com slash FarmerFredDailyGardenTips. Lots of snark. The Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, where there is always a garden dialogue going on, where people leave questions. I can make up answers. That's what I do on this show, too. And your questions are more than welcome. You can email them in to fred at farmerfred.com. Phone them in. Terry's here to answer the phone. 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. On today's program, if you're looking to attract the garden good guys, especially the pollinators, to your garden, there are a lot of great new plants out that are very attractive to pollinators. And we'll have a rundown of the 2018 All-America Selection Award-winning pollinating plants coming up in a few minutes. Also, you know what's nifty about this time of year when the evenings are warm and maybe you're outside as the sun goes down and if you live in the country or near water, you may hear the flip, flip, flip of somebody flying over your head darting back and forth, eating mosquitoes in midair. It is bats, and we have a talk about bats coming up. Uh, We're going to be having a conversation with a UC farm advisor, Rachel Long, about the benefits of bats and how you can attract them to your property, especially if you have some acreage as well. We have a garden grappler coming up. We're going to talk about food dehydrators and and a lot more. And uh, I I do want to spend a few minutes talking about the benefits of of hand watering. So we'll do that in a few minutes as well. But first, let's talk about the weather because we must. It's hot, 100 degrees yesterday. Over on the KFBK Garden Show this morning, I was talking about a little experiment the National Weather Service did where they took six thermometers yesterday and stuck them on or near various surfaces. They had an air temperature thermometer, one that was inside a car, one that was on asphalt, one that was on a sidewalk, one that was on dry soil, and one that was on a lawn. Yesterday at 5 o'clock, when the official temperature in Sacramento was 100 degrees, which of those surfaces do you think had the highest temperature? It was the asphalt. And it was, what, 142, 148 degrees? Yeah, think about that the next time you take your dog for a walk when it's hot. That's why you do it early in the morning or late at night. The car thermometer inside the car when it was 100 degrees outside was 132 in the car. Sidewalks weren't uh, much cooler either. They were like 130. Dry soil, 126. The winter was lawns. Turf, 98 degrees. Whoopee, all a two-degree savings when it's 100 degrees outside. So when it's hot, it's hot. Thank you very much, Jerry Reed. Uh, The... uh, the trick is, is to stay cool, and that includes today. It's not supposed to get to 100 today, 98, the official expected high in Sacramento, but it could certainly get to 100 degrees or more in outlying areas that aren't named Executive Airport. So let's figure it'll be another triple-digit day. And there is a red flag warning, meaning low humidities, gusty winds equals fires. 
Northerly winds 10 to 15 miles an hour with gusts up to 25 miles an hour. Strongest on the west side of the Sacramento Valley, extending into the coastal range. Humidities as low as 4 to 12 percent. And any fires that develop will likely spread rapidly. And sure enough, that is what is happening today, especially in the northern Sacramento Valley and over in some of the coastal counties. The latest on the fires in Northern California, the Pawnee Fire in Lake County, which is northeast of uh, the fires located northeast of Clear Lake Oaks in Lake County, has burned 1,500 acres. Mandatory evacuation orders for the entire Spring Valley community there in Lake County. There is a 3,000-acre fire that's only 5% contained in Tehama County. They're calling it the Lane Fire. It's off Highway 36 in Paynes Creek, and it's uh, near Red Bluff. And evacuations in effect for the Ponderosa Sky Ranch, Paynes Creek Road, and Plum Creek Road. The uh, Stoll Fire in Tehama County, west of Red Bluff, 500 acres, and that's uh, 40% contained. And that's... uh, affecting uh, residents around Baker Road, Pasquenta Road, Wilder Road, and Stoll Road up there in Tehama County. And I mention these because I know we have a lot of listeners up that way uh, on Sunday morning, so I want to keep you abreast of the latest of what CAL FIRE is telling us. Over in Shasta County, a 300-acre fire in Millville off Bascom Road and Highway 44. That's 75% contained. But uh, the big fires right now, the Pawnee Fire in Lake County, the... uh, Stoll Fire west of Red Bluff, and the Lane Fire off Highway 36 in Paynes Creek. I believe that's about halfway between Red Bluff and Lake Almanor, where that fire is 3,000 acres, 5% contained. So we'll keep your keep our eyes on that and let you know of any changes uh, in that situation. And taking a look at the extended forecast, well, as you can imagine, hot, warm, fair through October, Highs in the 90s, the mid-90s for the balance of the week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Overnight lows, probably a bit cooler than it was uh, this morning. I think the low at our place was 72, which isn't much of a low. But lows should be dropping into the upper 50s tonight through uh, Friday night. But uh, this is this is what you get when you live here this time of year. Clear skies, warm days, for lucky maybe a delta breeze. Your plants, though, your summer-loving plants are loving it. Your cool-season plants are stressed. They don't like the heat. All those things you planted last September, October, if they're still around, broccoli, cauliflower, calendulas, uh, pansies, snapdragons, they're suffering. And they're probably best off maybe heading to the compost pile and replanting them come September, October. By the way... Be wary if shopping at a nursery or a box store or whoever else, the grocery store, whoever is selling plants right now, because this is a dangerous time of year for the unsuspecting plant shopper who basically doesn't know the difference between a snapdragon and a petunia. Because there are cool season plants still being offered for sale. So unless you live along the coast, you may want to avoid buying those leftover snapdragons that you may be seeing at a valley nursery right now. They won't last long. Now, why would you buy those plants? Because they're right now they're beautiful and in bloom. But I got to believe that with the heat we had yesterday, the heat we're going to have this coming week, this may be the last week you're going to see snapdragons at a nursery. 
because they're going to start croaking and not looking too pretty. But maybe you're going there. Maybe you went yesterday. Maybe you're going today and you're going to see Snapdragons. The only reason to buy them would be if you're having a party in, over the next five or six days and you need instant color, a lot of instant color, then I would buy Snapdragons. But for anything longer than a week or two, eh, go with your summer annuals. Go with the marigolds. Go with the petunias. Go with the cosmos, the zinnias. Much more reliable color for us in the hot summer months. All right. When we come back, good pollinator plants, plants that attract the bees, the hummingbirds, and others, and a lot of new entries that are All-America Selections winners for 2018. We'll talk about those when we come back to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Everybody's looking for plants that do double duty. Maybe not just looking nice or tasting nice, but maybe attract pollinators to the garden or maybe coming into the house as a cut flower, something that'll last for a long time. There is one group that trials plants every year looking for winners which with such qualifications. It's the All-America Selections winners. And it's a, a great group. They've been doing this for 60, 70 years or so. And Diane Blazak is the executive director for the All-America Selections. And Diane, it's 2018. It's time to find out about the new winners for uh, annuals and maybe some perennials that might be for good cut flowers or that would attract pollinators. And we'd be very happy to talk about those. That's something that we always ask our judges about is, you know, how was it as far as pollinators? Did you have the hummingbirds or the bees flocking to it? And then uh, we always want to know about cut flowers, too, because there's such a trend right now of people growing their own, like for their weddings or, you know, like you say, just bringing them indoors as cut flowers. So, yeah. Um, how about if we start talking about zinnias? Because that seems to be just huge. And we have a new one that just came out that. I don't know. I feel like make your prediction thing. It might be our best zinnia ever, but it's called Queenie Lime Orange. And so I'm going to try to use really good descriptive words. So if you think of a good, um, almost double flowered zinnia, the bottom flowers as it opens are like a deep salmon. And as they go up, it's, it's like shades of salmon and orange and golden yellow and then yellow and then the center of it is almost a bright red orange. So it's called Queenie Lime Orange. It'll get about 24 inches tall. It would be perfect for cup flowers. And of course, uh, the pollinators love zinnias also. It really Zin does resemble a dahlia. It does. Yeah, that's how big it is. So it's, and it's just amazing. When I, I saw it and I took some garden riders out to trials to see it, Nobody could get away from it. They just they were taking pictures, and at that point, I didn't even know if it was going to be an AAS winner. So they're all thrilled now that it is a an AAS winner. What is the diameter of the flower itself? 
Uh, it's about two to three inches. You know, it's going to kind of depend on your climate um, and, you know, what the temperatures are, but it can get quite large. The ones I saw in California were about three inches across. Wow. All right. Again, that's the Queenie Lime Orange Zinnia, one of the 2018 AAS winners that'll be available at uh, at a seed rack near you or in all sorts of seed catalogs. And that's uh, one of the beauties of the All-America Selections winner. At your website, you can direct people to where they can find these seeds. Absolutely. There's just a little button there under AAS Winners that says buy AAS Winners. And we have a whole list of mail order companies that offer our winners for sale. And that website is AASWinners.com for more information. All right. So the Zinnia, that uh, Queenie Lime Orange Zinnia, good for cut flowers. How about one that attracts pollinators? Let's talk about the Canna. And we have two of them. One is South Pacific Orange and one is South Pacific Scarlet. So what's cool with AAS is quite often a breeder will enter one color and then as they work towards um, different shades or different colors, they'll enter that one also. And here's what really um, surprised me is how easy cannas are to grow from seed. A lot of people are going to think that they have to uh, plant like the tubers or rhizomes or something. When you plant a canna from seed, you're going to have a lot fewer disease issues because it's a seed. They are large seeds, and believe it or not, you get close to 100% germination. So these two, I highly recommend for people who are looking, especially for like a tropical-looking garden, and the whole pollinator thing goes along with it. And here in California, canas are pretty much a perennial. Oh, excellent. So you won't have to start them every year, but if you want to, it's going to be easy. (laughs) (laughs) So what are they? What are the winners? Uh, South Pacific Orange is one, and that's a 2018. And then South Pacific Scarlet is a little bit older. I think it's like four years old, but it is still very readily available. And the two of them together would look amazing. South Pacific Orange and South Pacific Scarlet, Conna Lilies. And, uh, yeah. it, you know, what's nice, too, about Conna Lilies is they are perfect if you use them in a large container. Oh, they do great in containers. Absolutely. Now, I notice in the 2018 winners that there is a gypsophila, the gypsy white. It looks beautiful. It is. I love it because of how many flowers it has on and kind of a semi-double. So this one, um, yes, good for pollinators, great for containers, a little bit less so. You know, gypsophila is very commonly the baby's breath that you use in cut flower arrangements. This one is not that tall. So this is the one you put in containers or you put it like as a nice border outside. It's definitely going to attract the the, the bees and the butterflies. Uh, just wouldn't they recommend it for a cut flower because of its height. Now, I would think that the kupfia might attract its share of uh, hummingbirds and you have a 2018 winner. We do. Now, this one is cool. This one is a vegetatively propagated variety. So that means you're not going to be able to find the seed available but you will be able to buy it as plants, both online. We have some people selling it, um, as well as your local garden center. So the other name for this is called Mexican Heather. This one is called Flory Glory Diana, which I had nothing to do with the name of the variety, but I kind of tend to like that name. But it does come in three different colors. Uh, the color, the kind of... Uh, Burgundy pink is the AAS winner, but it also comes in white and a lighter pink or a like light lavender. So, yeah, Flory Glory Diana, great for pollinators. Another one that's good for containers. We've been talking about that. 
Right. Yes, exactly. They have that nice compact size that, that do quite well in containers. And depending on where you live, it might even be able to take full sun, sort of like the Marigold Superhero Spry. That's one of your 2018 winners. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's another one. Um, great for containers, great for outdoors, great for pollinators. And the colorations of it is so vivid that it's going to be one of those like showstoppers or people walking by on the sidewalk will be like, wow, what is that? It's a French marigold. So it has the bicolored darker red on the bottom and bright yellow gold in the middle. Over the years of all the AAS winners, which are the ones you're, you're getting the best feedback about that are attracting the pollinators? Oh, definitely the echinacea. Echinaceas are, are kind of trendy, I think I can say. And we have two and they are perennials. Uh, we trialed them as first year flowering annuals. They did exceptionally well as first year flowering annuals, but then they come back every year. Uh, these things have just been doing an amazing job in my garden. Um, I love it. You plant them and you don't have to worry about them for a couple of years because they're just going to keep growing. And the, the, Birds, well, first of all, the bees. So the bees will just love them. The butterflies love them. And then as the seed heads start to dry in the fall, then you've got all the birds who come by and eat the seeds. So the two that we have are Echinacea Cheyenne Spirit and Echinacea Powwow Wild Berry. Good echinaceas for the garden. We've been talking with Diane Blazak, Executive Director of the All-America Selections for the National Garden Bureau. For more information about all the All-America Selections winners over the years. And Diane, what is there, about 60 years worth of winners? Actually, there's 84 years oh. of winners. And it's like we have 800, more than 800 varieties. That aren't, they're not all still on the market, but it's a lot to choose from. All right. The AASWinners.com is the website. Diane Blazek, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Thank you. There's a lot of great plants that uh, do well with um, the heat that attract pollinators uh, that you can buy as plants, not just from seeds as well. And Proven Winners has just come out with a list of uh, plants that are new and really can add spark to a landscape. They have a new coneflower out called Lakota Fire. It's sort of a salmon red uh, flower, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. And they also have a new daylily out called Tiger Swirl. And uh, there is a, a new butterfly bush that I know the local wholesale nurseries have a hard time keeping in stock because it's just selling and selling and selling. It's a low-growing butterfly bush called Low and Behold. The Low and Behold Blue Chip, to be exact. It has blue-purplish flowers, much like you'd see on a budlia, except this particular budlia, the lo and behold, only gets maybe two or three feet tall. So it's a very compact budlia. If you're familiar with butterfly bush, you know that they can get rather sprawling and uh, need some heavy pruning on occasion. And in fact, that's one of the best ways to contain them is in the fall is to uh, basically, after they're done blooming, is to cut them back to maybe 6 or 12 inches tall, even though it might be an 8-foot shrub. And that was the problem with butterfly bushes, was that they just tend to get out of control. But this new one, this uh, lo and behold blue chip, uh, attracts butterflies like crazy, but it tops out at 2 or 3 feet tall. The other people want that that are looking for plants also are looking for plants that do well in shady areas that can take the heat and maybe aren't very thirsty. And there is a whole slug of plants called heucheras and heucherellas that do well in the shade 
And they're known primarily for their beautiful foliage, big leaves, variegated colors, but they do get flower stalks on them that can rise two feet above the plant. You may know them as coral bells. And they do quite well in our area in shady, dry areas. If you have like a north side of the house and you're looking for a ground cover plant, maybe a plant that only gets a foot and a half tall or so, look at all the heucheras and heucherellas that are available that do well in the shade. And as an added bonus, once they're established, they don't really require that much water. They, they can sh- thrive in the shade. Another good shrub for shade that can take dry shade is the winter Daphne, the Daphne odora. It actually doesn't like summer water. Water it normally in the wintertime, and it'll give you some wonderfully fragrant blooms right around Christmas and New Year's. And it's a shrub that gets five or six feet tall. And if, if you have a winter Daphne, the best advice I can give you, if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. Leave it alone if it's doing well. Don't try to move it. Don't, do, don't, don't, don't even praise it in its face. It might get mad at you. So if you have a winter Daphne that's doing well, let it be. But another good plant for dry shade, the winter Daphne. So those are some other plant ideas for you. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about bats. We're gonna, we want to attract more bats to our area. Healthy bats, yes, because they're doing a darn fine job of controlling the mosquito population. We'll talk bats, and especially if you live in the country, about bat houses when we come back to get growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. In an eight-year study from 1997 to 2004, University of California evaluated the use of 186 bat houses in rural areas of California's Central Valley. Well, did you know that well-placed bat houses can attract bats to Central Valley farms? That was the conclusion, the results of the study, headed up by Rachel Long. UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor in Yolo County. And uh, Rachel, when it comes to bats, I, you are probably bat fan number one. I know. I've been uh, called Batwoman many times before, and I'm actually thrilled with the title. Thank you for, for having me today. It's amazing the insect population that can be controlled by bats and just the sheer numbers of insects that bats can control. Are they a benefit to a farmer? Bats are definitely a benefit to a, to a farmer. Uh, bats consume their body weight in insects every night. So if you have a colony of, say, 500 bats on your farm, they'll eat the equivalent of a grocery bag full of insects every night. And many of these uh, insects that they're feeding on are agricultural pests. So the bats feeding on a farm are definitely a huge benefit to a farmer. Now, when it comes to bat houses, can you get bats to quit roosting inside a barn or a garage and get them out to a bat house? So the bats are really true to their roost, and they, they do like to go back to where they were born every year. And uh, and they're just amazing, you know, the whole migration where they use actually the stars and the landscapes because they have good eyesight in addition to echolocating. Um, they, uh, they do use uh, visual cues, and they also use the Earth's magnetic field. And so they, they do come back to the same place where they were born every year, just, just like salmon. And, uh, and so they, they really, it's really um, very, very difficult to, uh, to actually you know, 
um, get them to move into a house, a bat house. But if you do have a colony of bats where you don't want them, you can exclude them from that area. And then oftentimes they will move over into the new roost. And when I'm talking about excluding, that if you have a colony of bats, it's again mothers and their young. And the mothers, they have their young usually about uh, early June. And it takes a good, um, a good six weeks for the young to fly. And uh, so you don't want to do any exclusion during that time because otherwise, you know, if you, if you walled the uh, mothers out, then the babies uh, would die. So, um, so the best thing is, is when I talk, when I mention an exclusion, what I'm referring to is, is like a little one-way um, gate, like a, like a doggy door or something like that, where you put a flap over the area where you know the bats are coming in and out. And then they can push their way out, but they can't come back, land, and pick something up and get back in, into that area. Um, because they have wings, they don't have hands, and they, so they can't they can't lift things. So if you do an exclusion, it's really important to use something that 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 bats can see light, so they know they know how to get out. So you want to use something like wedding veil material, or something, and you just drape it over that opening where where the bats are, where you don't want them, and then they'll push their way out. Um, and then uh, they can't get back in, and then oftentimes you can force them into using the bat house. But again, you don't want to do that exclusion when they have their pups because the pups can't fly, and then, of course, the mothers are frantically trying to get back to their young. So when is a safe season, then, to do a permanent exclusionary uh, construction? In the wintertime is the best time to permanently exclude them because they're, they're pretty much gone in the wintertime. Again, they, most of them are migratory, and they leave during the uh, during the winter time but it's always good still to try the exclusion and what i re- recommend is when people are doing an exclusion is to uh, just to basically again just put a cloth over that hole and use duct tape you know to tape on maybe two sides the top and then one side so the bats can push out but can't get back in and you want to leave that there for about a week and uh, because bats actually they can you know they can go into a dormant state particularly if it's nice and cool so, so I would recommend in a week, ten days, just to make sure that all bats are not in there, and then, uh, and then you know, once once you know that they're all gone, then uh, then you can just seal up that uh, that particular area, whether it's with caulking or wood or something, to keep them keep them out of that area. If a farmer sees bats on their property and he doesn't have bat houses, where are they most likely coming from? Bats can actually fly a long ways. They've been recorded to fly up to 30 miles away from their roost to forage for, for insects. And so, so they could be, if a, if a farmer in our area sees bats on their farm, they could be coming from a local barn. They could be coming from a, a tree hole where you might have a roost, you know, in a, in a big tree hole in a tree. Or they could be coming from, like, under the causeway uh, between Davis and Sacramento where they're roosting in the expansion joint. So, so they're very strong flyers, and, uh, and they're always going to where they think they can get a good meal. And, uh, and, so, um, and so if you don't have a bat house, you can still benefit uh, from, from bats that are, that are moving into the area from, from around the region. Are they attracted to water features? Water is very important for bats that uh, bats do have to drink, and they drink on the wing just like swallows, so they swoop down and they scoop water into their mouth. And we find that uh, that if you do want to attract bats to to a farm using a, a bathhouse, then having water nearby is actually clearly a benefit because they do need water and they do need to drink several times a night. What is considered nearby? 
Nearby is within a quarter mile of water, so you want to make sure that you have uh, some sort of water source within a quarter mile, and that's going to increase the likelihood that you will have bats on your farm. And how big should that water feature be? Is there a minimum size that they're attracted to? They need they need some open pool that's probably at least 10 feet long because what happens is they, they're just like swallows. If you've watched swallows dip in for a drink of, of water in a the pond, they just need some some room to swoop down and and uh, and drink water and uh, and come back up so um, they can't they don't have uh, feet like a bird they have little little teeny teeny legs that are used for clinging on to uh, a surface upside down so they can't land very easily and take off from the ground so so that's why you need to have a big enough kind of area where they can swoop down and uh, and like an airplane doing a touch and go and so they need a little bit of room for that so i would say something that's at least 10 feet are there plans online for constructing bad houses or these exclusionary tactics? There are, yeah. The, uh, and actually, I do have a, uh, a publication out there online uh, through UCANR, which is about uh, bird, bat, and owl boxes. So, so there's information there which contains the uh, plans for building uh, bat houses. One of my favorite uh, bat houses, though, that uh, that I've seen on a farm is the uh, farmer just took a large piece of plywood and he put a three-quarter inch spacing all around the plywood, and then he just nailed it up to his barn. and uh, And he's got a lot of bats that are using that. I've seen other bat houses that are much more elaborate with multiple chambers, you know, maybe five or six different chambers, and it definitely takes a lot of work to build something like that. Um, so you can do something either simple or more complex, and you can get you can actually buy bathhouses online as well. Now, one thing we didn't touch on, and we should, is the fact that since bats can carry rabies, these bathhouses should probably be out of the traffic of people and pets. That's right, and uh, rabies is uh, it is a very it's a fatal disease, so definitely one that uh, that you don't want to get. And ra- and bats carry rabies, and so you'll have maybe one in a thousand bats that could that could have rabies. Um, but rabies is completely preventable. Uh, basically, you need to make sure to vaccinate your pets, so your cats and your dogs have to be vaccinated, and uh, and then you want to make sure never to handle a bat with bare hands. And because uh, they, you know, if they bite you, then you then you can uh, get uh, infected with rabies. And then also not placing the bat houses in an, in an area where you have lots of kids that uh, little kids or something that might pick up the, uh, the a bat or you know if you have a cat or a dog in the area because sometimes they do fall out of the out of the roost. So so you don't want to put it in the place where there is a lot of uh, uh, people traffic. It's uh, that's something to definitely think about. So it's very important then to have your pets uh, vaccinated for rabies. Yeah, rabies is is definitely preventable, and uh, the main way that you know rabies is getting into the human population is through unvaccinated animals, so dogs or cats that uh, that that then come down with rabies and they'll transfer it, you know, with to uh, uh, to a person. So so really the key is uh, vaccinate your pets and never pick up a rabid bat, and it's just then rabies is preventable and you don't have to worry about it. And again, if people want more information about this uh, conversation, the article that you have online, Well-Placed Bat Houses Can Attract mm-hmm. Bats to Central Valley Farms, it's available. You can just Google the phrase Well-Placed Bat Houses, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure if you put Rachel Long's name on there, it would pop right up, mm-hmm. and you can read more about that. And also, you can read more about bats uh, at the Pest Notes from the uh, University of California Integrated Pest Management System website. Rachel Long, always a pleasure talking with you. Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension, Yolo County Farm. 
Farm Advisor. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us telling us more about bats. Well, thank you. It's just my pleasure. I always appreciate talking about uh, one of my favorite subjects, which is which is bats, because they are so beneficial and feed on tons of insect dust. So thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. When it comes to pumpkins, most people think, okay, grow them, carve them up, put them on the front porch. Well, how about making them a serving container, especially with miniature pumpkins? We're at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. We're talking with Vicki Marie Ward, Master Gardener. Vicki Marie, you just gave me a great idea for a recipe using miniature pumpkins. What is it? Oh, it's a French recipe that I have, and I take the small pumpkin and carve the top off of it so that it becomes a container, punch some holes in it with a fork around the outside like you would a pie crust, and I know you're challenged there, so just (laughs) lightly poke it so that it doesn't explode in the oven. Then you put basically a casserole in it whatever you would do in a casserole dish and particularly anything that's got pork in it is going to be delicious because you need that oil or that fat to lighten up that pumpkin taste and make it so that everything goes together so i would put in something like uh, rice or orzo or you know something of that nature that you would put in a or other vegetables from the garden right and then chop up other things uh garlic onions uh, peppers uh, maybe even tomatoes if you've got one that's particularly choppable and uh, peas, maybe, uh, whatever whatever you've got. It's actually not a bad thing for leftovers, to be honest with you. And you put it in, you, you into the inside of it, and then you bake it in the oven at, I don't know, 350, 400, something like that, until it looks ready. About oh, an hour, maybe. You're, okay, minutes. thank you, an hour. Okay, 45 minutes to an hour. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I'm German, I need numbers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but anyhow, that depending on the size of your, of your pumpkin, mm-hmm. if you have a small pumpkin, and last year I used, I believe it was Little Bear, okay. and uh, they were maybe four or five inches across and high, and that's one serving. That's a whole meal right there. And you've got your squash. You eat the squash, too. You don't eat the skin, but you eat the, the pumpkin. Right. And uh, it makes for an excellent meal, and it's very showy if you want to have a dinner with uh, several people doing that and you have them in uniform sizes. You can also use a larger one and cut it in half or in fourths and split it that way as well. I wonder if you could serve soup in it. Yeah. I don't know why not, okay. but you would probably be better off if you bake it a little bit first so that it's got the flavor so that you can scoop it. Okay. I'm going to go back to some real basics here. So let's say I go out to the garden and I've picked the miniature pumpkins. Mm-hmm. All right. Bring them in. I've washed them off. What sort of knife do you use to slice them open? How do you scoop out the innards? Well, the same way you would a jack-o'-lantern except that you don't make the little carvy face on it. You just mm-hmm. cut the top off, and so you would use whatever knife is sharp. Usually, for me, it's a paring knife, and especially since it's a small pumpkin. You don't want a huge knife that's going to overpower that tiny little pumpkin. You could make it fancy if you wanted to, serrate the, take the edge of it, make a little scallops or whatever. If you wanted to take a lot of time, I'm usually hungry. <laughs> so okay. I just cut the top off and make a lid. And I do cook it with at least part of the time with the lid. I take it off towards the end, to make sure that there's some browning on the top of the casserole. Oh, that's a good idea, too. 
I like that. It gives it a little more yeah. flavor. Yeah. yeah. And you scoop it out with a spoon. Scoop it out with a spoon. And as you mentioned, you, fork. you could take that filling and even make that part of the meal. Exactly. Now, you, everything's edible except you probably wouldn't want to eat the skin because it's usually a little tough. That would be. It is a winter squash, yeah. which surprises me that you could uh, cut off the top with a paring knife since it usually has a rather hard outer surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does take a little energy. Okay. All right. <laughs> I thought maybe a serrated knife might be better. No, no. Just, I mean, I use just a sharp one. Okay. All right. <laughs> there are a lot of great miniature pumpkin varieties. They range in size from three inches to six to seven inches. And the beauty of growing miniature pumpkins as opposed to your standard or giants, they don't take as long to mature. So you can be planting those miniature pumpkins from seed anywhere from mid-May, probably through late June, mid-July. Well, that's true. And you don't need as much space as you do with a big, big pumpkin. That's why I have mine in an old wheelbarrow that was beginning to uh, uh, rust and uh, I thought, oh, maybe I should repurpose this because I really don't use it as a wheelbarrow. I went to drill holes in it for drainage, and the minute I touched it, part of the bottom <laughs> fell out. So I put screening, like backdoor screening, yep. to hold the soil in. Okay. And it still has a wheel? It still has a wheel. I can, it makes it easy to move it around the yard. <laughs> All right. Make okay. sure I get the sun just right. You know? All right. Something else to do with your pumpkins, especially your miniature pumpkins. Use it as a fancy serving container for whatever vegetables or rice or whatever you want to put inside and, and enjoy that uh, throughout the summer and fall. Vicki Marie Ward, Master Gardener, thanks for your time. You're very welcome. Anytime, Fred. We have a garden grappler coming up in just a few minutes. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred Prize Closet. Clue available at FarmerFred.com. All right. Uh, Good luck on that coming up in a few minutes. Well, I started harvesting garlic yesterday because I noticed that uh, of the seven leaves that are usually visible on a garlic plant, four of the seven had started to turn brown. And that's usually the sign to dig one up and check to see if it's ready. And sure enough, the, the variety is a music garlic. It's a hardneck garlic. And sure enough, it was ready. And the way you tell, when you dig up the bulb, the uh, cloves should be pushing out against the skin, so there should be a bulge around it, not completely smooth. And the skin should be intact. The white, papery skin should be uh, intact, because if you see it starting to peel off, that usually indicates uh, the garlic is overripe. There's a lot of great garlic varieties out there to choose from. And the music garlic that I planted was a test. So we'll see after I let it dry for a couple of weeks. We'll see if we like the taste or not. But it was ready to get harvested. So that that's a good thing. A lot of the varieties that grow well in California are considered artichoke variety garlics. The recommended varieties... Uh, according to the uh, VRIC, which is the Vegetable Research uh, Institute at UC, they suggest uh, growing the California late or the California early. Those are both good varieties. If you want a milder garlic clove that's a little bit bigger, try elephant garlic. Now, don't make the mistake of purchasing garlic cloves for planting. And by the way, the planting time is usually September, October, maybe early November. Don't choose grocery store garlic to break up into cloves for planting. Most grocery store garlic has been treated with an anti-sprouting agent, so basically nothing will happen if you plant it. However, the exception would be if it was 
organic garlic, then you could go ahead and plant it. But uh, a lot of good varieties out there that you can plant that do quite well in our area. Some varieties uh, in the past that I've grown that were very good uh, included Enchilium Red, uh, Nootka Rose. We like that one. I remember that one. China Rose is an excellent one as well. And there were a lot of other great varieties, too, that you can plant. A, a good website to go to for more information about uh, garlic, garlic varieties, is Fillery Farms, F-I-L-A-R-E-E, Fillery Farms. They're based in the state of Washington, and they really are the, the go-to location for more information about growing garlic. And you can try soft neck and hard neck garlics. But again, if you're just starting off and you want to plant garlic in the fall, and that's when you plant it to harvest around now, the varieties recommended include California Early, California Late, uh, the German Red, the Enchilium Rose, uh, the Nootka Rose, some good varieties. And this, I'm, I've been getting good reviews from others about this music garlic that I planted this year, but uh, we haven't taste tested it yet, so we'll see. So anyway, uh, it's garlic harvest time, but thinking about uh, saving some of that for planting the cloves next fall. All right, we'll see. All right, we'll take a short break. When we come back, it'll be Garden Grappler time, a chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred prize closet. Clue available at FarmerFred.com. Don't forget, Get Growing is available as a podcast, so if you miss any portion of the show, you can listen to it at your leisure at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app, and you can also download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. It's Get Growing here on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, it's Garden Grappler time. Terry, you ready in there? All right, he's ready to jot down names and numbers to see if you have a correct answer or two. Clue available at FarmerFred.com. The Garden Grappler today, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, name a variety of garlic. I think I just mentioned some, but there's much more uh, if you... Get that clue at FarmerFred.com that says a clue available for the Garden Grappler. Or uh, visit a good website. Or or Google garlic varieties. Name a variety of garlic. Because it's garlic harvest time here. All five callers uh, get a prize. Bonus prize for caller five. Because as you know, in the Garden Grappler, you cannot repeat an earlier answer. So it behooves you to have a backup answer. The numbers to call. 916 916- Five seven six one five seven eight, or eight six six three three one eight two five five. I'll repeat that nine one six five seven six one five seven eight, or eight six six three three one eight two five five. Name a variety of garlic and have a backup answer. All right, and while you're doing that, I want to talk to you about a little walk I did through the yard yesterday. Because I was hand watering. On a 100 degree day, it probably is a good piece of insurance, especially for your containerized plants or plants in raised beds, to give them an extra drink of water. Because in a container that's in full sun, the soil temperature in there could rise to 140 degrees. Roots will die. Water will evaporate quickly. So it's not unusual for those containers in full sun to, on a 100 degree day, to get watered twice. 
Just saying. All right. And the weather, by the way, it could reach 100 again today. The expected high in Sacramento now, they upped it to 99 degrees. So chances are outlying areas will get up to 100 or more. And it's going to be in the mid to upper 90s throughout the week. No rain in sight, of course. And um, overnight lows in the upper 50s, for that matter. So be careful not to overwater. But again, with containerized plants, raised bed plants, they can dry out quickly. All right. So anyway, yesterday, giving uh, plants a little extra drink of water. I like to hand water plants every now and then, even though there are automatic drip irrigation systems. I like to get out there and spend some quality time with the plants. And most gardeners do, because that's when you start seeing problems that you otherwise would not see. If you were just walking with a purpose through the garden to do something else, you might not notice some things that you would notice if you were looking at each plant as you were going through the garden. And watering by hand is a great way to look at each plant going through the garden. So what did I see yesterday? Well, one of the more disconcerting things I saw was on my pluot tree. I won't say the pluot tree is my favorite child, but let's say I would be willing to hand over the keys to the car to the pluot tree and not the others. Still, the pluot tree looked fine. I mean, as far as the leaves go, it was healthy. There were even little pluots on there, far from being ready. I did notice some bird damage, but that's to be expected because I haven't been netting it yet. I thought the birds would at least wait until they were edible before eating it. The problem I saw were vertical cracks along the main stem. When you see vertical cracking on a tree on the main stem, notice the direction where those cracks are facing. In this particular case, they were facing west. If you see vertical cracks on the main stem of a tree, and that those cracks are facing either south or west, chances are what you're looking at is sunburn. And sunburn is damage to bark. It can also affect foliage, fruit, and other plant parts due to excessive exposure to the sun. Now, sunburn injury in and of itself, just because the bark cracks, does not necessarily mean problems on its own, but it does make that tree more susceptible to wood-boring pests, but it also contributes to the overall decline in the tree because the tree basically has to repair its own plumbing system and possibly the premature death of the tree. So what do you do? What do you do when you see these vertical cracks? The first thing I did was realize if I want to whitewash the trunk, I don't have time to do it today, but I need to provide some extra protection for that tree in the meantime. So I found a big piece of cardboard and propped it up inside the container where this pluot tree is growing and basically shield it from the sun facing west. And this piece of cardboard was probably four feet tall. So it did a good job of protecting the entire understory of the tree and that main stem. So that's one strategy for protecting the tree from sunburn is to provide some sort of protection from the direct sun. I mentioned whitewashing trunks, and that is a good way to help prevent sunburn. It won't cure it if it's already happened, but it can help prevent sunburn. What you want to do is apply white interior latex paint diluted with an equal portion of water. Do it to young trees, 
or to older bark that's newly exposed to the sun if it is susceptible to sunburn. Thin bark trees are very susceptible to sunburn. Besides fruit trees, maple trees, another good example of where to look for vertical cracks on the west or south side. Um, interior. Why do you want to use interior, not exterior paints? Because interior water-based paints for whitewash are safer for trees than oil and water-based exterior paint just because of a lot of other stuff they put in exterior paints. So uh, use that uh, 50-50 mix of water and interior white or off-white interior latex paint. Or you can go to the nursery and buy trunk whitewash, tree trunk whitewash that's made specifically for this purpose. After you do that, maybe to help prevent more problems, you could move the tree. (laughs) In my case, it's in a container. Or somehow do something to protect the trunk. In my case, I put that piece of cardboard there to provide partial shade and prevent more sunburn. And uh, another reason why sunburn happens to trunks is is not it's a combination of that direct sun hitting the south or west side of the trunk but it also happens where you don't have adequate water where if that plant has had to go through boom and bust cycles of watering irregular watering that could be a problem so especially with containerized plants trees especially you want to make sure that even soil moisture is the rule of the day. It's not necessarily a, a, a habit to develop as far as how much to water and when to water as to let the weather be your guide. The hotter it gets, the more frequently you may need to apply that water. So it's water issues. It could be nutrient issues too. But again, provide appropriate cultural care. And that includes the right fertilizer, uh, the right amounts of water, and uh, Again, don't irrigate too frequently either. All right. So that was one problem I saw in the trees that uh, got me a little bit worried there. All right. And there were a couple of others. I'll mention that in a minute. But first, let's get some Garden Grappler winners here. The question today, boys and girls, is name a variety of garlic. I ran through a few about a half hour ago. Karen in San Diego, I know you were listening, so go ahead and uh, throw me a garlic variety. How about California Early? California Early is one of the recommended varieties by the University of California because it is a silver skin variety that does quite well in our area. and is a, I, I like to call it the training wheel variety garlic to grow. If you've never grown garlic before and you want to basically increase your confidence about growing it, try California Early. So good answer, Karen. So I'm going to be sending you... Uh, <laughs> growing caneberries in the Sacramento region. I'll send you something, Karen. It may not be that particular one, because okay. I, do blackberries and raspberries grow in San Diego? Yes. Oh, yes. okay. Well, then I'll then I, then I will send this to you. I thought maybe it didn't get cold enough, but no, we do have them. Okay. Yeah. All right. Then this will this will work for you. Then I'll send you. It's an excellent multi-page document about growing caneberries and with a lot of good advice and good varieties to grow. So I'll be uh, throwing that your way, Karen. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. All right. And another person for whom growing caneberries in California and Sacramento may not work is, would be for somebody in Idaho, like Diane. Hi, Diane. Hello. Hi. What part of Idaho are you in? Uh, central Eastern, almost to Montana. 
We're like 12 miles from the Montana line. So like, okay, it's south of Sandpoint then. Oh, yeah, we're we're in the Salmon, Idaho area. Okay, so I'm, I'm trying to remember what's there, Klamath Falls, Twin Falls? Oh, no, we're east. East of that, okay. But, and we're like a zone four, yeah. and we do raise cane berries. Okay, then good. If you have a garlic variety then in mind, then I can send you this cane, growing cane berries in the Sacramento region that should do just well. By the way, I want to say something about eastern Idaho and western Montana. It is the darndest, prettiest area of the country I've ever seen. It's no, the, it's a little like uh, um, California in that you travel a little ways and you can get a totally different um, terrain. Oh, yes. But once you cross into the mountains and uh, you go, is that the Sawtooth or Kitchen Mountains where you are? No, we're in the Lim High Range and uh, we're considered a high, high altitude desert. Where I am, okay. we're coming down, and then the Bitterroot. We're just below the Bitterroot Valley, which is uh, uh, more of a wet, uh, mountainous area. Okay, so you get snow without the benefits of the water. Uh, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> but we have enough in the mountains so that we have enough to irrigate with when we go dry. All right, but the the the, the mountains of eastern Idaho and western Montana just absolutely gorgeous. So, Diane, go ahead. Give us a garlic variety. Oh, just a minute. I wanted to give you something. uh, Well, anyway, there's one called Brown Tempest. Brown Tempest? Yeah. And I wanted to let you know where I got it from is a book called Garlic is Life. It's a memoir of Chester Aaron. And he grew garlic in retirement in California. Oh, okay. and so he brought in lots of different varieties, European and Yugoslavian and Russian. And so anyway, so I have a lot of different names here. Well, let's, let's just go with Brown Tempest so we don't take away a prize from somebody else. Oh, I know. But, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> but, but the Brown Tempest, I'm reading about the Brown Tempest here. They sell it at Fillory Farms online in, in Washington, and it is a glazed purple stripe variety. It has purple bulb splotches and brown cloves with a hint of rose blush and no stripes about six cloves per bulb with a nice shape and size sounds like something i want to try brown tempest there's a lot of garlic to try out there that's what i'm starting to do there you go all right okay hey diane so i'll 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 send you that growing cane berries in the sacramento region and you can glean the necessary knowledge you need from that Uh, great Thank you. All right. Thanks, Diane. Mm -hmm. All right. Interesting. Okay, so we've had California Early and Brown Tempest. There are plenty of other garlic varieties out there. Name a variety of garlic. It's the Garden Grappler, 916-576-1578 or toll-free 866-331-8255. It's the Garden Grappler. It's going on Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. We are in the midst of the Garden Grappler getting answers to today's musical question. Name a variety of garlic because it's garlic harvest time here. And uh, the, the trick with harvesting garlic is to let it rest after you've harvested it. You can either detach the uh, leaves or leave them on 
and then put them in a cool, dry location for a couple of weeks, and then you can cut the uh, stems off and uh, bring uh, the bulbs inside to a cool, dry place. But finding that cool, dry place can be very difficult. And a lot of people think, well, what about the refrigerator? No, you don't want to put garlic in the refrigerator. It will dry out and go bad very quickly. The idea is to preserve the garlic to last as long as possible. That's why it should be mandatory. Everybody should have a root cellar or at least a basement. <laughs> Something. The the best bet, if you don't have either of those, would be an interior closet, uh, maybe in a hallway where the vacuum cleaner is. Hang your garlic, braid your garlic next to your vacuum. Oh, well. All right. Name a garlic variety. Caller number three. It's Jackie in Rio Vista. Hi, Jackie. Hi. Hi. So go ahead. Give us a garlic variety. I'm coming up with a silver white soft neck. A silver white. What was soft it? Soft neck. Oh, uh, oh, oh, a silver white soft neck. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Silver white. It's, it's a, probably a silver skin variety, I would think. And the silver, let's see what it says here at Fillery Farms. It's a California strain. It's it's a large bulb garlic that is productive both in cold winter, hot summer, as well as humid maritime climates. So it's one of those you could uh, grow in Eureka as well as in Sacramento. It's similar. Nice. It's similar to uh, other silver skin varieties, and it's a beautiful white uh, garlic. Yeah, excellent. Good good answer there, Jackie. The uh, the silver white garlic. And uh, have you grown that? I have not. Um, I just last fall planted my first round of garlic and didn't have the best of luck, but it was it's a new adventure. And I just happened to get like a basic garlic from, you know, one of the stores, not a grocery store, but and um, so I didn't realize there were so many varieties. Yeah, yeah. Once you get into it, it's kind of hard to stop. And, uh, yeah, your best bet is uh, doing some catalog shopping for all the varieties. And, again, the uh, Fillery Garlic Farm up in the state of Washington has an excellent online site called FilleryFarm.com where you can find out more about all the varieties that are available. And they even sell variety packs, too. So you can figure out from that which ones uh, you like the best. Of course, the trick then is to label them twice uh, when you plant them, because you're bound to forget what you planted and where you planted it, so you need signs out in the garden to tell you what you planted, and then you need to make a list of it for indoors to remember in case the the garden gnomes steal those signs. Yeah, my husband likes to uh, catalog everything on the computer. Good for him. All right. All right. <laughs> he catalogs dates and everything, so. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> He's great about that. Good well, for him. thank you. All right. Thanks, Jackie. Appreciate it. All right. All right. I'll be sending you the uh, publication from the Sacramento County Master Gardeners called Growing Caneberries in the Sacramento Region. So that'll be coming your way. Here he is, formerly in Loomis, now in Granite Bay. It's Ted. Hi there, Fred. How's your tractor? It's uh, actually, it's running pretty good. Good. We're cleaning cleaning the barn, and I left my wife out there to come and call you. (laughs) 49 years of, of you-know-what out in the barn. Yes. So we're making room for the tractor so it'll be indoors. Good idea. Yeah. All right. Well, I have a variety artichoke. Did somebody mention that? There are artichoke varieties of garlic, uh, but to go ahead and mention one. Oh, okay. It's the California early. Sim- and did you know that 80% of garlic 
in the United States is grown in California? Yes, I knew that. Did you know that caller number one said California early? No, I didn't, but I'm ready with California latte. Well, actually, it's California late, but I can understand the confusion. (laughs) All right. I'm not French. (laughs) Well, there's only one T in it. It's California late. Okay. All right. If you got California early, you also have California late. Oh, of course. That makes sense. Thank you. (laughs) So all you've done is give Starbucks an idea for another coffee variety now. I, you know, that's where I, uh, uh, yeah, you're right. right. (laughs) I want to tell you, I I dug my garlic and onions yesterday, and my garlic didn't do very well this year. What what did it look like when you dug it up? Um, Not, uh, it it wasn't a big, uh, only a few of them were the big heads. Uh, They were little tiny Little tiny pieces, and I I just don't know what was what's wrong. And they were all in one spot. Um, they just it it doesn't look very good. I'm going to use it. You know, we'll put it in the press, and yeah. when we want something. But uh, they this was not a good year for me with garlic. Did you cut the scapes off? I didn't have any. Oh, really? You didn't see those little curly cues, huh? No. no. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Uh, were they planted in full sun? Yes. Okay. And did you try to withhold I, water from them for I the did. last few I weeks? I stopped the watering. They're in All with right. the onions and that, and stopped the watering when the, I was supposed to. But they're just not. And this year, the go last year, the gophers got most of them. So I put put them in a raised bed with uh, wire underneath, so that so the gophers didn't get them. But anyway, I'll try again next year. They're a fun uh, fun plant to. grow yeah they are and yeah try some different varieties and uh, see what happens okay ted always a pleasure all right thank you all right you'll you'll send me whatever you're going to send me yes i will send you whatever i'm going to send you Okay. All right. Thank you, Fred. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Call at number five in today's Garden Grappler. It's Patty in Elk Grove. And Patty, go ahead. Name a garlic variety that isn't California late, California early, brown tempest, or silver white. How about Italian late? Italian late. Yes, Italian. Or Italian latte. <laughs> Italian latte. All right. Keep giving Starbucks ideas for, <laughs> for, for coffee drinks. Yeah, Italian late. Let's find out about the Italian late here. I imagine it's an Italian. I think that's an artichoke variety, too, of garlic. Uh, yeah. And, list I have. Yeah. yeah. Let's see what they got here on Italian late. Well, I know it exists because I got it in my literature here. They just don't carry it at Fillery Farm. But uh, the Italian late, I think, is a, a wonderful variety here that does quite well in our area. I think I even mentioned it at the uh, clue for uh, Farmer Fred at FarmerFred.com in my little garlic test of many years ago of growing many varieties. I think that's one of the ones I grew uh, in the garden. The ones that did well for me back then were Enchilium Red, which everybody enjoyed. Also, Nootka Rose uh, were excellent uh, varieties that uh, did, oh, okay. did well for us, too. Um, yeah, so, yeah, no, Italian late, uh, good variety. All right, I like it. Tell you what, Patty, I'll be sending you, what do we have for the big winner today, Fred? The Oh, yes, it's going to cost me a fortune to mail. It's the Homeowner's Guide to Water Smart Landscaping, so I'll be sending that your way. Oh, great, thank you. All right, Patty, thanks for playing our little game. Appreciate it. All right, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Uh, all right. Thank you all for participating in today's Garden Grappler. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we're going to find out about the benefits of dehydrators and what you can do with them. Because, golly, if you grew it, 
it's it, you got to eat it, and if you got to eat it, you need to preserve it. And dehydration is a great way to preserve what you grow. And we'll get the lowdown and pros and cons and all that stuff about dehydrators when we come back to get growing on Talk Six Fifty KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. We're here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. Any, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know that one of my favorite sayings is, well, you grew it, now eat it. But you can't eat everything fresh. You need to preserve it. And that is the role of the master food preservers to give you some good lessons on how to preserve what you grow. And we're talking with master food preserver Melody Bauer here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. And Melody, let's talk a little bit about what people can do to save what they grow. It's it's summertime now, going to be summertime. The tomatoes, the squash, the peppers, they're all coming in. We, we've, we've heard about freezing and we've heard about pressure canning. Let's talk a little bit about dehydration. I think every home should have a dehydrator. Absolutely every home should have a dehydrator. Um, everything from the leftover apples to leftover spaghetti, whole meals, um, yogurt. It's amazing the things that you can put in a dehydrator and have wonderful, chewy, just like it came out of the frying pan things that you can eat later. There are some fruits, especially like peaches or pluots, that when you dehydrate dehydrate them, it, it really emphasizes the sugar. So if you like sweet treats, there's nothing healthier, I think, than a dehydrated peach or pluot. Those are really, really good. The other thing I love is fresh pineapple. You can sprinkle a little bit of um, your favorite flavored jello on there, and then when you dehydrate that, that's like eating candy. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned earlier about leftovers, and really for dehydration purposes, you want to pick what you want to dry at the peak of its uh, ripeness. Yeah, as far as ripeness, but also with leftovers, like even mashed potatoes, if they're (laughs) spread out... Well, you asked me. (laughs) If they're spread out on a dehydrator tray and you dehydrate them to the point where they will snap um, and then you put them back into water later and just bring them back up, they taste just like they did when you cooked them. So you're not throwing away all that food. We throw away roughly 40% of everything that we grow and buy. And I would think it might even be higher than that. And that's such a shame. We're living in a nation where kids still go to bed hungry at night and this is available and it you know it's a great way to um, inexpensively the dehydration especially is a very inexpensive way to keep your stuff yeah your uh, percentage of 40 percent food wasted is spot on the california department of food and agriculture has estimated that 40 percent of all food grown in california ends up in the trash can and that can change with a few simple techniques by people and including preserving what they grow and a dehydrator, I think, is one of the best methods for preserving that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the different dehydrators that are out there. You've got the, the circular kind and you've got the rectangular kind. So why don't you talk about those? We're not allowed to actually name, you know, name brands, but the difference in the two, the circular kind usually have trays that you can stack. One of the problems with that is if your heat source is at the bottom, and it usually is, at some point you have to start rotating those trays. And you can only go just so high before that starts to be a problem. With the square ones, again, you're you're limited to how many trays you have. Um, On average, I think it's five or nine. But with the trays, you can pull a couple of those bottom ones out, and you can uh, proof your bread if you're a baker, or you can make yogurt. 
And as far as the dehydrators go, you can actually dehydrate your favorite flavor of yogurt, spread it out on a tray, sprinkle some nuts or coconut on it, roll it up like a little fruit roll, and your kids are going to think they're eating candy, and all they've got is yogurt. Talk about some of the features available on dehydrators. If one is going shopping for a dehydrator, what, what sort of controls do you want on that dehydrator? You absolutely want to have temperature control. You need to have everything from about 90 to about 145. That way you're not going to fry your herbs if you're doing any of those. And you've got it high enough that if you want to do some jerky, it's safe to do that. You need to have a reliable fan. You want to have that air circulating all the way through it. And your heat source should be something other than a light bulb. You need to have a really good heat source. Some of them have timers, and you really don't need a timer. Most of your recipes will give you an idea of how long it's going to take. But here in the valley, with the humidity and everything that we have, it can range from four hours on some things to 18 on others. And so, you know, that, that food might be in there for a bit. But it's well worth it in the wintertime when you've got summer stuff to chow down on. Now, you mentioned drying herbs. And I think one of the benefits of the circular dehydrators is those herbs don't blow all over the place. Whereas with that rectangular or square dehydrator, if the fan is in the back, the, the herbs tend to blow towards the front and end up in a pile instead of on a single layer. Is there a way around that? A lot of people just dry their herbs in a paper bag. Um, you punch a bunch of holes in the bag so that there's air circulation and you hang it anywhere in your kitchen and after three or four days it's going to be dry. The other advantage of that is as your herbs fall off the stems they're all collected in the bottom of the bag. And then they kind of laugh at me but I tend to take a very very clean boiled knee-high stocking and I put my herbs inside the knee-high stocking and dry them in there and they don't blow anywhere. And they come out of the stocking okay? Oh yeah, they come out of the stocking just fine. And trust me, I keep my stockings just for that purpose. I don't wear them in between. Okay. Is there a temperature range for those stockings? Is, it, is there a temperature setting that might be too warm for it? I think probably my body temperature and that 98.6 is about as high as you want to go on those. All right. And again, with the adjustable thermostat, you can control uh, the drying process. And uh, as you mentioned, it's a matter of hours. So it's, it's very easy to uh, set it to uh, dry overnight. Oh, yeah. I do a lot of my stuff overnight. I'll put it in about 9.30, 10 o'clock before I go to bed. And then I pull everything off by 6 in the morning. Some stuff has to go a little longer. And sometimes I'll just unplug it for a few hours and then plug it back in when I get home and do whatever it takes. We know about drying fruits and some vegetables. What are some of the more unusual fruits or vegetables that you've heard about uh, being dried other than mashed potatoes? Well, I mentioned spaghetti. Um, and you can spread your spaghetti out on a tray. I like to find a pan that it's going to fit in afterwards, and then my son can just pull it out of a bag, throw it into his frying pan, add enough water until it reheats back to where it's pliable, and he's got mom's homemade spaghetti. <laughs> and I'm not worried about him spending six bucks at McDonald's and eating a bunch of sugar and a bunch of fat and garbage. So this is spaghetti that's already been cooked, and you can just basically dehydrate that. Right. So you're taking your already dehydrated pasta, and you're mm -hmm. making spaghetti out of it, and then it can even have a little bit of meat in it if it's cut up fine, so that um, that'll dehydrate too. You wouldn't want big chunks because that's risky, but if it's like ground beef in there or something like that, you're fine to even have a meat product. Um, you can do whole foods. You can do stews. I know people that even do soups. 
That takes a while, but they have dehydrated soups. It's great for backpacking. You can dehydrate barbecue sauce and then just take a sheet of barbecue sauce with you to bring back. You mentioned risks. Let's talk about some of the, the risks involved or the precautions people should take when drying foods. Uh, drying is probably one of the safest things that you can do, but what you want to avoid is anything that's not top quality. If you've got food that's not at its peak performance and you try and preserve it in any way, whether it's drying it or whether it's canning it, it's only going to be as good as it went in. So you can't really save something. If it's starting to get old, either eat it right now or just get rid of it. But this is the whole idea behind putting your stuff up as you get it. Speak of about putting foods up after you've dehydrated it. What is the best way to uh, store dehydrated sliced fruits, for example? I just put them into, um, I hate brand names, but the Ziploc plastic bags. And I double bag everything so that there's a safety factor. And they just sit on the shelf in the cupboard. How long will they last there? As far as quality, we like to use stuff within a year, but they'll last for as long as they stay dry. 20 years from now, if it's still dry, it's edible, it's safe. It might not taste as good as it did. It might be a little discolored, but it's perfectly safe to eat. If you're looking to eat out of season, why not make it the foods that you grew during the summer? If you want that homegrown (laughs) pluot for Christmas dessert, there's no reason why you can't. All you need is a dehydrator and a Ziploc bag. That's about it. That's one of the cheapest things to do. Here in the Valley, you can even do it outdoors in the summer on a sheet or anything like that. Um, We do recommend that anything that you dehydrate, you store in a freezer for 48 hours afterwards to kill any critters that might have attached themselves to it. And even if you're dehydrating in the house, it's amazing. Fruit flies, things like that, they will show up. So if you have something on the shelf and you open it six months from now and you've got little weevils, it's because you did not put it in the freezer and kill off everything. All right, so take the necessary precautions. There, but we should mention that there are a lot of great books about dehydrating with uh, recipes and, and suggested times for drying. There is one, and I am going to mention a brand name on here, and Costco sells it a lot of times during the year, and it's just called the Dehydrator Bible, and it's probably one of the best ones out there. And is that the publication from the University of Georgia? No, that's not their one. It's a private one, but if you go to the University of Georgia on a website, National Center for Home Food Preservation. Why don't you say that again? National Center for Home Food Preservation. And it's through the University of Georgia, and they will have absolutely everything that you could possibly want on there. You can spend weeks and weeks on that website. There you go. Good advice. Get a dehydrator. You have a freezer. Well, add a dehydrator to the mix and keep what you grow. You grew it. Now eat it. Melody Bauer, Master Food Preserver here in Sacramento County, thanks for giving us some dehydration tips. Thank you for sitting here with us in this wonderful, wonderful place. We're out at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, and um, I'd love to go walking and looking at flowers, but I'm enjoying sitting here talking to Fred Hoffman. Thank you so much, Fred. (laughs) You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE and KSTE.com. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. It's going to be another warm one. Highs near 100, supposedly, though, around 98, 99. But we will see. It's already off to a warm start. Here it is. It's not even noon yet. And uh, in Lincoln right now, 90 degrees. Marysville, 90. Here in Sacramento, 86. 
and uh, warmer the further north you go. 96 in Redding right now, Red Bluff 96, Oroville 93. Stockton, Modesto still in the upper 80s. One piece of good news looking at current conditions out of Travis Air Force Base right now in Fairfield, 76 degrees, but the southwest winds have picked up to 25 miles an hour, and that's that's a good thing because southwest winds indicate delta breezes, cooling ocean breezes coming inland. Hopefully it'll reach us here in Sacramento. Uh, winds very light in the Sacramento area right now. Further north, though, the winds are a different story because they're coming out of the north, so they're hot, dry, northerly winds to 20 miles an hour in the Redding and Red Bluff area, which basically means that uh, there are situations with fire up there that uh, haven't been uh, quite yet solved yet, and uh, there are several fires going on that uh, are threatening structures, uh, threatening people that have uh, impacted the area. And we'll get into uh, some of those areas, too, in just a few minutes. We'll get the latest update from CAL FIRE about those fires and find out the latest. In fact, they, they just refreshed their web page, and here it is. The Pawnee Fire in Lake County, 1,500 acres, 12 structures burned. No control on that one yet, no containment yet on that one. And that fire is northeast of Clear Lake Oaks in Lake County. Up into Hama County, the big fire is the Lane Fire. It's 3,000 acres, only 5% contained, off Highway 36 in the Paynes Creek area. Evacuations in effect for Ponderosa Sky Ranch, Paynes Creek Road, and Plum Creek Road. That area of Tehama County is about halfway between Red Bluff and Lake Almanor on Highway 36. So that's the Lane Fire, 3,000 acres there. And also in Tehama County, west of Red Bluff, uh, the Stoll Fire, which is 500 acres and 40% contained. There are some uh, local evacuations for that as well. And uh, due to the fire, PG&E has shut down power, uh, not only because of damage from the fire to their lines, but also as a precautionary measure. And it, it peaked yesterday. There were something like 12,000 people up in the Red Bluff, Oroville, Chico area that, that we're without power, and the latest from PG&E has uh, power outages in the Red Bluff area down to about a 1,000 people, so that's good news for them. And again, the uh, long-term weather forecast, it's going to stay in the 90s for the upcoming week, and overnight lows, fortunately, will be a little bit cooler than it was last night, where it didn't dip much below 70. Uh, overnight lows for the coming week coming will be in the upper 50s. All right, garden events. What's going on uh, in the way of garden events? Nothing. It's too hot, unless you're indoors. Steve Zion is indoors today. Steve Zion, Sacramento's organic advocate, is at the Rockland location for Green Acres Nursery and Supply. Green Acres in Rockland, located near uh, the intersection of uh, Highway 80 and Sierra College Boulevard. And Steve is uh, representing Our Water, Our World, doing integrated pest management, telling people how to help preserve the good bugs by using less toxic pesticides. And uh, he's answering your garden questions as he roams the insecticide aisles uh, there at the, the Green Acres store in Rockland. You can drop by and say hi. Coming up Thursday, Sacramento. Oh, by the way, Steve's going to be on the program next week, I do believe, July 1st. So we can we can argue there. He'll probably just tell us how wonderful the Milwaukee Brewers are or some ridiculous stuff like that. All right. Uh, Thursday, Sacramento Perennial Plant Club is having their evening meeting at 7 p.m. at the Shepherd Garden and Arts Center at 3330 McKinley Boulevard in Sacramento. 
The topic will be the power of plants on the plate. That's the subject of a talk by Ann Evans, who teaches a healthy kitchen class through the Renaissance Society. And uh, I guess uh, in honor of that, they're going to be having a uh, nice little uh, get-together, a little salad uh, brunch, or salad potluck, I guess, uh, right before the show. The talk at 6 p.m. there, Thursday evening, Sacramento Perennial Plant Club meeting at the Shepherd Garden and Arts Center at 3330 McKinley Boulevard. It is free. Everybody's welcome. All right, what else is going on? Is that it? Okay, then I can plug Harvest Day at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center on Saturday, August 4th, 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Lots of speakers, a lot of booths. It's just a wonderful gathering of the best horticultural minds and bodies in the Sacramento area. I'm not including myself in that, but uh, I will be there. But uh, there will be, uh, it's just, if, if you have a garden question, at Harvest Day, there will be somebody there who's the expert. I love going to Harvest Day because I don't have to answer any garden questions. All I have to do is point. When somebody asks me a question or they bring me a weed that needs to be identified or a bug, and I'll just say, see that guy over there? Ask him. See that gal? Ask her. Makes my job easy. I like that. Uh, but it is. It's just wonderful. There will be nurseries there, a lot of booths, and uh, good times. It's free. Parking free at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, Saturday, August 4th, 8 until 2 o'clock. The uh, Hort Center is in Fair Oaks Park, which is south of Madison on Fair Oaks Boulevard. Farmer's Market is just about closed for the day. In Sacramento at uh, 8th and W Streets underneath the freeway, 8 to noon every Sunday. But there's plenty of farmer's markets throughout the week. It is high season for farmer's markets throughout the Sacramento area. On Tuesdays, they're at Roosevelt Park, Fremont Park, and that's it. And on Wednesdays at Chavez Plaza. On Thursday at the Florin Sears Store at Florin and 65th and also in Capitol Mall. On Saturdays, there's four farmer's markets in our area one at the Promenade in North Natomas, one in Elk Grove at the Laguna Gateway Center, one in Fair Oaks at the Sunrise Light Rail Station, and also at Country Club Plaza there at Watt and El Camino. And that's those four are on Saturdays. Looking for fresh fruit, looking for fresh vegetables, get the early line on tomatoes and peppers and apricots and peaches and nectarines and pluots. Now is the time to start heading to your local farmer's markets. There are plenty of farmer's markets uh, throughout the state of California. If you just uh, do an Internet search of the phrase of California Certified Farmers Markets, you will get information on where you can find the one closest to you. All right, is that it? Okay, wrap it up, Fred. Please stay tuned for the KSDE Farm Hour, if you would, please. It's one of my favorite shows. On this week's show, man, oh, man, farmers are just getting hit left and right in California. you got trade issues. All right. You got tariff issues that really pose a risk to California agricultural products. And you got the fact that the immigration problems has really stymied the farmers and their need for labor right now. Farmers need workers and the prospect for getting easier access to skilled foreign ag labor are dim. So uh, you got that. Then you got West Nile virus that's affecting horses in the area and a new parasitic plant called broom rape in Yolo County in the Delta. But there's good news. Two, hawks are killing rodents. We have more information about raptors in rodent control to protect area levees. 
Uh, so that's all coming up from noon to one on the KSTE Farm Hour. I'll be back again next Sunday with another thrill-packed episode of Get Growing. I hope you can join us then. Thank you for listening all these years. I appreciate it. Have a cool weekend.